Paul says, but concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business. Imagine that, it's in the Bible. (laughs) And to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. Father, we just humbly ask that you'd help us to continue now in worship Lord, that it wouldn't end with singing songs, that we would recognize this as a part of our worship of you, acknowledging that we are people who need to be instructed, Lord. We need to be taught by you, God. We need to be guided and corrected. Lord, we need to be encouraged and spoken to about what matters to you and what's best for us. So we ask, prepare us. Lord, just even give us the ability to be alert and attentive, quicken us by your spirit. And we ask as always that we wouldn't hear wise or persuasive words of a man, but experience that demonstration of your spirit and your power speaking to our hearts. Bless your word. We ask these things together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You know, isn't it nice when on occasion people will say things in a very practical way? in very straightforward way. There's something very refreshing about that. And I find oftentimes that God's word can really be utterly practical. If there is one book on this planet that upholds the value of what we often call just plain old common sense, my vote, one of the top votes in my opinion, is the Bible. Common sense is defined as this, using good sense and sound judgment in practical matters. And as you can tell from what we just read in these verses together, here we get some very practical common sense guidance in regards to loving one another in a very, very practical way. I mean, so practical as you saw there in verse 11, Paul goes on to say to us, look, uh, lead a quiet life, mind your own business and do something productive to keep yourself occupied and busy and contributing to those around you. Now, again, remember the background of this section now in our letter we saw in chapter four, the beginning of it last week, Paul is speaking to Christians, the church of Thessalonica, you and I as well, about how we ought to walk, he said, and to please God. And particularly in relation to walking and pleasing God in our prior verses last week, Paul spoke there in verse one to eight about refraining from sexual sin. Despite what the culture is doing and how the culture lives in relation to its sexuality and sexual actions and conduct, he called us to live holy, to abstain from sexual sin in the various forms that exist. And now he addresses here in our verses this morning another way to please God. And that is by loving one another and really even using some practical common sense ways in the way we go about loving one another as he cites a few examples. Look with me again back in verse 9. It picks up, Paul says, concerning brotherly love, you have no need, he says, verse 9, that I should write to you. For you yourselves, he says, are actually taught by God to love one another. So Paul brings to their attention that one of the ongoing or we could say continual lessons that any believer or child of God will be repeatedly learning 
by God's decision is a continuous lesson of how we are to love one another among the family of God. Do you see it there in the ninth verse? He speaks of or brings up the subject or topic of brotherly love. Brotherly love indicates family love, love amongst God's family. This section is not talking about our love for God personally. That's one part of love we should have. We should love the Lord our God, Jesus said, with our heart and soul and mind and strength. But this now, God is speaking about the issue at hand, is our love for other brothers and sisters among God's family. That is, the other sons and daughters that God has, like you and I, who are his children, whom he also loves and whom he cares about and whom are our brothers and sisters because we have a mutual father spiritually. Again, the Bible teaches that when a person receives Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, at that moment when you recognize you're a sinner, when you realize that Christ is the only Savior and you put your faith in Him and your trust in Him, the Bible says at that moment that we are born spiritually. Jesus referred to it as being born again. The idea is that a spiritual birth process happens and it's at that moment that a person literally becomes a child of God. We use that term very loosely in our culture. Oh, we're all children of God. Well, technically, biblically, we're all created by God. But the Bible teaches, in fact, Jesus even told the religious leaders on one occasion as he reproved them, you do the works of your father, the devil. So Jesus indicated there is a distinct difference and the Bible teaches we become a child of God when our spiritual birth experience happens. That's something that we all must experience. And it's when we accept Jesus Christ, this spiritual birth process happens. Our spiritual life then begins. We enter into a relationship with God whereby he becomes our spiritual father. And as we enter in then to the family of God, the eternal family of God, we also then inherit brothers and sisters in Christ, others who are children of God. And as well, a spiritual love then is awakened within us for our spiritual family. A love for God is our father that we never had before in a new way. And a love spiritually is awakened within for this family that we become a part of. In fact, 1 John 3.14 says it this way, very emphatically. It says, we know that we've passed from death to life, that is spiritual death into spiritual life. This is how we know, John says, because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. So one of a few proof tests the Bible gives to us of how we can know, am I really saved? Have I really been born again? Have I really genuinely had a spiritual experience where I've genuinely become a child of God and, and am in right relationship with God? Well, the Bible says this is one of the ways that you can know is you'll find there's awakened in your life this love for other children of God. That all of a sudden, in a way that never existed before, as you enter into spiritual life, not only do you sense a love for the Father in heaven, but you also find there's this new awakened love for other Christians. I remember that. I wasn't very interested in Christians before I got saved. In fact, I wasn't very kind to most Christians before I got saved. You know, I may tolerate them, or but I found that all of a sudden, when I got saved, I wanted to be with Christians. I found myself at home with Christians and I found myself more comfortable and more at home with Christians than I did with non-Christians. 
And something happened internally inside of me where you discover there's now this sense or connection and care for fellow Christians and this desire to actually want to share your life with them because you feel at home with them. Again, the way I can illustrate it is when a person's born into a natural family, your biological family, you don't have to kind of work on or develop this kind of naturally ingrained love that's there for your biological family. I mean, let me illustrate this further. Some people grow up in a household where their family treats them horribly, where they have the most horrible home experience with their biological blood family, but yet there's this bond that is there of love that's even almost hard to suppress, even though somebody may treat you horrible in your own biological family, and it is just there by the fact that there's this blood bond, there's this bond because that's your family. And the same happens spiritually. When you are born spiritually into God's family, there's automatically this ingrained love as the result of that, this supernatural connection to other believers because we have the same father. We're now family members. We're now brothers and sisters in Christ. The same spirit dwells within us and you feel a sense of connection with God's people and at home among them. And I think until and unless you become a part of the family of God, you don't even really fully grasp and understand that because you haven't experienced that yet. In the same way, I can't fully make a person experience what I experience in my heart internally towards my mother, my father, my brothers, my, my relatives because they're my relatives unless they became a part of my family. And in the same way, I think until someone becomes a part of the family of God, it's hard to grasp that. But it is a spiritual experience that God describes that causes this family love. Now, just like a natural and biological family... There is never the absence of conflicts and challenges, nor, let me go further, are we even going to necessarily be best friends with everybody in our family. Listen, you know, I have two brothers, you know, one of which is very, very different from me, and we socially wouldn't necessarily, I wouldn't necessarily say that's somebody I'd be best friends with, but that's my brother still. Do you understand what I'm saying? And, and that relational connection, that family brotherly love, that's not based on social compatibility. It's based on relational connection and dedication because you're family. And I think as Christians, sometimes we super spiritualize, we, we hyper spiritualize this mindset because we think, oh, well, I, I, don't, I don't feel buddy-buddy with everybody. I don't even know if I like everybody in, in, in the family of God. I, I kind of, you know, look, that's normal to some extent. I mean, let's not try and be hyper-spiritual. Let's face the reality that you're not going to be best buddies with everybody in the church. You're not necessarily going to have a personality that gels perfectly with everybody, but that doesn't mean they're not your family. They're still your family. They're still your brother and sister in Christ. And because of that, there should be this relational bond. And the Bible teaches we're called to practice brotherly love, family love, because we are family. And because we understand this concept spiritually. 1 Peter 3, 8, 9 says, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers. Be tenderhearted, courteous not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling on the contrary blessing knowing that you were called to this that you may inherit a blessing so again the bible says look your family act like family 
live like family because this is something that God has created and designed among his children. Now look what Paul says in verse 9 concerning this family love or brotherly love, which is his topic here. He actually commends the the church of Thessalonica and says to them there in verse 9, he says, there's not even really a very strong need Paul says, for me to write much instruction about this subject to you there, he says, actually, look at it, verse 9, he says, because you yourselves are actually, I know, taught by God to love one another. So Paul knows from his own personal experience as a child of God, as a follower of Jesus, as it pertained to experiencing this brotherly love and exercising this brotherly love as a believer, Paul knew that so often this was something God was always speaking to him about. And Paul knew God's always teaching me about this love subject. So Paul says here to the group of believers, look, if there's one subject and lesson that I know God is repeatedly trying to teach you as a child of God, because he's always teaching it to me in the different churches I'm around, Paul says it's this, what it means to be loving one another practically literally, experientially, walking in love with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul says, I don't need to write much about it because I know you're actually already being taught by God, intuitively, regularly being taught directly by God himself. Question is this, how as believers, the Bible says here, are we taught by God to love one another? Well, let me, let me give you a, f- a few suggestions how I think that transpires experientially. First of all, by insight that we can obtain from the life of Jesus and the words of Jesus that we have given to us in the Gospels. Again, who was Jesus? He was God in the flesh, dwelling among us, manifesting to us what God is like. So Jesus' life existence, why Jesus came, how Jesus came, this was the manifestation of what love is. The way that Jesus lived out his life, the expression of how he lived, it was the epitome of love manifest. Again, John chapter 13, we see this incredible demonstration of Jesus loving his disciples, it says, to the full extent. Remember, as he humbly served them and washed their feet. And then at the end of that, he then said these words in that chapter, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. That is in the same way that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you're my disciples if you have this love one for another. Then in John 15:12, Jesus declared this, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. So one way that we see God is teaching us how to love one another is directly through Jesus. By looking at Jesus's life, by learning from him and his expression and by taking his words and allowing them to teach us as God in the flesh how to love one another. A second way that God teaches us how to love one another is by the indwelling presence of God's nature being inside of us. By the indwelling presence of God's nature being inside of us. Second Peter chapter 1 verse 4 says that as Christians we are partakers or participants of the divine nature. Again, the Bible teaches that when a person becomes a Christian, the Holy Spirit goes from outside of their life, drawing them, convicting them, bringing them to Jesus. The Holy Spirit actually takes up residence. God actually moves inside and actually indwells your life. And now the Holy Spirit of God himself dwells inside of us And as a result, that's why the Bible says you're now a partaker of the divine nature. The idea is in the same way 
biologically, you know, the, the DNA biologically of my father resides in my life as his son. Well, the Bible's saying spiritually, same thing, because the spirit indwells you and you're born spiritually. God's spiritual DNA, if you would, his divine nature has now been deposited in some way into your life as his spirit lives inside of you. And what does the Bible say of God? First John says that God is what? Love. So that means as God's divine nature enters into me and resides in you now, it inclines us to want to be more loving. It inclines us to want to express love. Again, if you want to read more about that, I'd reference for your notes, 1 John 4, verse 7 to 12. It kind of builds on that understanding a bit. Let me give you a third way where I think God teaches us to love one another. That's this, by the instruction that we constantly receive from the voice of of the Spirit speaking inside of us. Instruction we receive from the voice of the Spirit speaking inside of us. Jesus said this regarding the Spirit in John 14, verse 26. He said, But when the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, comes, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. So again, the Holy Spirit is this internal tutor this internal teacher inside of us and one of his ministries in our life on top of many others is to, Jesus said, continually teach us to help us understand the ways of God, to speak to us, to instruct us, to correct us and convict us when we're not being loving and, hey, that's not very loving and it would have been more loving if you would have handled it this way and, and he's inside of us always speaking and showing to us by his testimony to us internally how to love one another. And I think one other practical way, fourthly, that God does this at times is as well just through examples we see in each other's lives as representatives of the Lord. We see examples of people loving one another. Wow, that's, that's what it means to love somebody. And, and we look at another Christian and we see them loving someone and God teaches us through that or through his scripture or through spirit-led counsel that God instructs us in these ways how to love one another. Now, Paul goes on regarding how we should love one another among the family of God to then say to them, verse 10, and indeed, regarding this love for one another, he says, indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, this is what mattered to Paul, we urge you, brethren, he says, that you still increase, notice, more and more. So Paul compliments them for doing so well already, practicing love. He gives them praise for that, but then he challenges them as well here, we see in verse 10, not to become content with their current status, but just to keep growing in this area. Paul says, I'm urging you, don't get complacent. Keep growing. This is an area you should constantly grow in. So he compliments them for their reputation of already practicing love. He says, concerning brotherly love, he says, you're already doing so toward all the brethren in Macedonia. So he was proud of this local church, the church of Thessalonica, the Christians there, because they apparently were being very obedient and they were very spiritually fruitful and mature in this particular area. It seems they had a real reputation for being a loving church, for being a church that demonstrated the love of God. And note, they weren't just exercising that love amongst each other in that local assembly, but among all believers. You see what Paul says in our 10th verse there? He says, you're doing this among all the brethren in Macedonia. Macedonia was a region or an area that encompassed many cities. 
Thessalonica just being one of them, which shows a rather beautiful thing. They practice love not only in their own local congregation, but with all believers in the region around them. And I can't think to myself, what a beautiful thing that is to remember as Christians and as a local church that we're just one part of an extended family of God's people. And, and we should certainly exercise love towards one another. Certainly our love should be prioritized in our immediate church family, but we always need to keep perspective as well that there's an extended family of God. And it's a beautiful thing when we love believers and have that perspective on a broader uh, scale as well. And Paul says to them, look, you're doing well, but look at verse 10. He says, but we're urging you, pleading you. He says, brethren, increase in this area more and more. So he challenges them, don't become content. Don't become content because you are doing well. Interesting, the language that Paul uses there, it actually is terminology that speaks of going above and beyond a set limit. To exceed even what one would think is expected and required, Paul says, no, you know, more and more exceed even what you think the expectation is. Keep on exercising, he's pleading, greater extents of love in more ways. You know, I think that there are certain areas that we should all agree as Christians, there are certain areas of the spiritual life that if they're carried to an extreme, that somehow it actually can become more unhealthy. There are certain aspects of the spiritual life that if and when carried to an extreme can actually get out of balance and unhealthy. But the one area, the one Christian virtue that can never be carried to excess is love. There can never be a time, I assure you, where you are going to be guilty of God saying you should have used a little more moderation there in loving that person. I mean, you really need to cut back on that, Tony. I mean, you took that 70 times 7 forgiveness thing there a little too far. There's never going to be a time where we're going to be guilty of showing too much love to a brother or sister in Christ. Rather, there's always room, there's always reason to love a little bit more and to show a little further extent maybe than even we already have in love. Paul says it this way in Romans 13. He says, Owe no one anything except to love one another. See, the Bible teaches the only ongoing debt we really should carry is the debt of feeling indebted to keep loving somebody, no matter what the cost is. And sometimes debts can be pretty big, right? <laughs> But the Bible is saying, look, the one ongoing debt you can always carry and God will be okay with it is that you feel indebted to keep loving no matter what the cost, what the requirement. And here's why. Because people who are saved and unsaved are hurting and fractured and wounded and confused and rebellious and struggling and have weaknesses in the flesh just like you and I. Just like you and I. And because of that, it's always a good reason to love to a greater degree, to a further extent. Peter says this in his writing, 1 Peter 4, 7 and 8, But the end of all things is at hand. What should we do then? Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers, and above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Love will cover a multitude of sins. The picture there is that love blocks out the need to keep focusing on the mound of sin. 
the mound of offenses or the continuous mistakes. It, it love blocks out and says, I, you know, it covers. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't need to see it. I don't need to keep staring at it. I don't need to keep focusing on it. Love can cover a multitude of sins. One of the ways I find in my life that God increases my love for other people is he just keeps exercising my muscles in that area. And, and, and God says, look, I, yeah, I want you to grow in love. Yeah, Lord, I want to grow in love too. I want to grow in love. He says, great, we're going to have a little workout. Let's just work out your love muscles a little bit. And let's put that, let's do a little conditioning there. And, and one of the ways God causes us to grow in this area to increase more and more is he exercises. He gives you, he gives you a little lab work. You know, I was just talking to somebody yesterday. I said, you know, Christians, we love lectures. We just don't ever like the lab work. Oh, give me another lecture. Oh, that's great. Yes, amen. Praise the Lord. Yeah, I agree with that. Oh, that's good. More head knowledge. <laughs> and God says, how about you try the biology lab now? Why don't you try putting that in the practice, learning that, living out your theology? Because, see, that's what brings growth. That's what keeps us healthy. And again, we don't just seek to learn this Bible. We're supposed to live the Word of God. That's the hard part. That's the hard part is taking the bonded leather and putting it to shoe leather and actually walking it out and saying, I believe that, so therefore I'm going to try and behave that way. It's hard, but Lord, give me the grace. And so the Lord gives us the lecture, but that he also attaches the lab to it. And he says, now, now live this out. Put it to the test. Grow in this area. Well, having put an exhortation now for greater measures of love, Paul then goes on in verse 11 and 12 to indicate how at times love can often be shown, I think, in ways that we sometimes fail to consider as important. Look what he says, verse 11, talking about an exhortation to love more and more. He says that you may aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your own hands as we commanded you. So he cites a few examples of how, if you would, brotherly love or family love can be expressed rather practically in ways that oftentimes we tend to kind of just overlook because they're so utterly practical. Now look with me there in verse 11, the end of the verse. Notice that Paul says, as we commanded, past tense to you. In other words, Paul's saying, these are things I already talked to you about when I was there in Thessalonica. And so Paul's indicating here that he's restating instructions or giving a reminder. Why? Because sometimes you restate instructions because they tend to just get overlooked or they tend to get neglected is not so important. So Paul says, I'm actually telling you something I've already talked to you about. He's restating or re-emphasizing some instructions. Well, what are they? He says, verse 11, that you aspire to, and that word aspire to means to make a conscious effort. Some of your translations say be ambitious to. The, the language there speaks of eagerly pursuing a goal, uh, making a, a goal something that you consciously say, Look, I'm going I'm to consciously choose to try and do this. I'm going to make it an ambition to, to pursue that, to focus on that effort. And three things, specifically, he says, verse 11, we should aspire to do. The first thing he shows us that we should aspire to is he says, aspire, first of all, to live a peaceful and a calm life. To live a peaceful and a calm life. He says there that you aspire to lead, the verse says, a quiet life. Now, that word quiet that's used there is not the term that speaks of quiet in the sense of being less talkative. That, and some of us, that may be a little more loving, truth be told. <laughs> you talk a little less. 
Or, or for me, sometimes it's, you know, speak a little more softly. Sometimes that's loving too, you know, that be quiet. You know, I, I've gotten that more than once. Dad, Dad, can you just chill out? I mean, don't, and so sometimes that is loving. But the term that's actually used there doesn't speak of talking less or speaking more softly as quiet. It's a term that speaks of being still, quiet in the sense of calm, settled down restful quiet in the sense of not frantic not restless and chaotic it's the opposite of a person whose life is like a constant storm at sea that's just you know chaotic and out of control the disposition were always disturbed and agitated and they just live a life that is just a crazy chaotic circumstantial life you know maybe you've had a neighbor like that before maybe you've had one they're such quiet neighbors these people animal house you know it's just the opposite Th- that's the idea here just a, a settled quiet state of heart and mind that produces a calm lifestyle it describes a person of a peaceful calm disposition that brings stability and calmness into an environment and that peacefulness is something that should be experienced by a child of god because isaiah 26 verse 3 says that god shall keep in perfect peace him whose mind is stayed upon him Jesus said that in me you may have peace. So as a Christian, a child of God, that peacefulness is something that should be part of our life and it can bring a very calming, settling effect into an environment, into a family maybe, if you're the only believer. It can bring a very peaceful, restful disposition and atmosphere if everybody else is all uneasy and worked up. It can be a very loving thing. Now why then is that a practical expression of being loving. Why is leading a quiet, calm, restful life in lieu of a chaotic, crazy, frenzied, disturbed life, why is that loving? Well, let's be honest. Some people almost regularly live in a state of constant chaos. They're always anxious, always agitated. Each time you see them, their life's in some kind of frenzy. They're worked up. They're frantic and agitated over some new dilemma or the next issue. And it's one of those things where maybe you know every conversation revolves around ongoing problems and continuous challenges and the next crisis that's going on. And whenever they you know, come into the midst, it's like the onset of an emotional mental tornado once again. And let me just say this. Please hear my heart. I'm, I'm not trying here to be unloving in the sense that there are times when we go through really hard, stormy things and we need to share with other people what's going on in our lives. And we need the help of other people around us in a legitimate time of stress and difficulty. I'm not saying that there aren't situations and seasons to share our burdens and struggles. The Bible even says, bear one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. That being said, there are some who sort of never seem to be willing or able to do the bearing part. But they always bring the burden part all the time, if you understand what I'm saying. And there's a part of that reality where they're always presenting their burdens. It's kind of the life verse is sort of the woe is me. And because of that, they're always interjecting chaos and agitation and a life that's out of control like a tornado in a storm. And God's saying, you know, that's kind of unloving to live like that among a family. It becomes an unloving thing when you interact with others because you're constantly drawing attention always to yourself, God would say. 
And you're operating in a way where you become then the constant focal point and sometimes being like that, then you draw away attention from maybe somebody else who actually really legitimately needs help in that moment. And if the focus is always on you, then the potential is sometimes it can distract from other people. And guess what? Everybody's got problems. Everybody's struggling to some extent. And everybody's entitled to have their moment to struggle at some extent. So to be the one to consume that can just be a very draining thing to those around you. And, and God's saying that's not really loving. That's not very loving. Again, if we consider the unsaved world, people who don't know God, would you agree? Look at our world. There are multitudes of stressed out people whose lives are constant chaos. And they're going from one chaotic thing to the next. So God's saying as my children with a good father... I want you to represent something different. I want you to be the individual. Again, everybody has personal storms, but in love's sake, God's saying in love's sake, try by the grace of God, looking to your Father, walking in the Spirit, drawing rest from Jesus in your life to be the person who leads a quiet life, who the neighbors say, you know, they're just such a sweet, quiet family. I mean, there's, there's no chaos over there. It's just such a, I mean, it's just they're different than everybody else on the block. Or somebody in the job place that others can see that and, and, and that our presence wouldn't always bring stormy weather into the midst, but that our presence can be a shelter for people who are in all kinds of chaotic storms and that our presence, because it is a peaceful, calm disposition, can be a refreshment to people. And we can be the one to help embrace others who are in storms because we have a, a stable quiet, calm life that can be helpful to others in the midst of their chaos and the hard times that they go through. So Paul says that that's a loving thing. Then he goes on, verse 11, to mention a second thing in our verse. He says, also, another way to be loving is to aspire or make a conscious effort. He mentions, I think, to respectfully refrain from being involved in other people's affairs. Do you see how the Bible puts it there? More straightforward than that. Mind your own business. Again, that, that's in the Bible. Imagine that. That God says, look, it is loving to respectfully refrain from becoming over and unduly involved in other people's affairs. One translation renders that verse this way, that you would be cultivating the habit of attending to your own private affairs. Peter says this in 1 Peter 4, let none of you suffer as a murderer, that's bad, a thief, an evildoer, or a busybody in other people's matters. Whenever I read that verse, I always go, wow. I mean, that's pretty stark there. Murderers, thieves, and busybodies in other people's matters. They're all on the same platform? What if we started arresting people and sending them to prison for being busybodies in other people's matters? We do that with murderers and thieves. God puts them on the same, in the same verse, Lord, you put that in there? But God understands the reality of how sometimes those can be very damaging and hurtful things as well. One of the ways God's saying we can show love is sometimes simply to mind our own business. My primary role in the family of God as a Christian is to maintain my own spiritual calling and walk with the Lord. Keeping my efforts focused on maintaining my own personal life and my own private affairs, not always becoming overly involved feeling that I need to judge or correct or fix others. And here's why. Because I realize in faith, 
God is fully able and completely competent and capable to work in other people's lives even without me. Without my involvement or my opinion or my need to get overly connected. Too often, and again, I'm just being very practical here because the Bible is practical. Too often in the name of loving concern, I think sometimes as Christians that we can over-endeavor in our participation in lives and situations of other people, getting overly involved in somebody else's marriage, becoming overly connected in some family situation or some matter or circumstance and pushing beyond maybe where we really should and overextending, in a sense, our good nature of wanting to be loving and as a result of that level of involvement, sometimes we as Christians from what I have witnessed, sometimes we as Christians can actually then cause and contribute to starting issues or making issues worse. And I do know this much, that being a trouble starter or a troublemaker is never a loving thing. It's never a loving thing. And I think sometimes we have to be humble and honest to ask ourselves an evaluation, has your involvement in that situation or that family's life or that circumstance has it actually made things better? Or has it potentially actually caused things to get worse? To cause a bigger dilemma or a bigger fiasco? And I think we have to be utterly practical and honest with ourselves to say, you know, did putting my nose into that really help? Or did it make things worse? How utterly practical God says regarding love, he says, to mind your own business. And I find in my own life that maintaining my own business my own life and all its affairs, that keeps me pretty tired. And I, and I love my wife. I got a great marriage and I love my daughters, but that's a lot of business. You know, trying to pay my bills and be responsible and deal with, you know, uh, that, there's a lot there. There's a lot to keep me occupied, a lot to keep me busy. And perhaps in some ways, if I want to live well and we want to live well, if we put more effort into maintaining sometimes our own private affairs in our own personal business perhaps if we simply did that not only would we all probably have more stable sound lifestyles but we also at times would probably find we have less time available to become guilty of accidentally getting a little too involved in somebody else's affairs and in some way having the regret of having maybe put our nose into things where we shouldn't have to an extent we should not have. Proverbs 26, verse 17 says this. Great verse, very practical again. He who passes by and meddles in a quarrel, not his own, is like one who takes a dog by the ears. The idea there, God says, if you meddle at times in a quarrel or situation that wasn't your own and you meddled, God says, here's what's probably going to happen. On top of the problems you may cause them, it'd be the same thing as you taking you know, a Doberman pincher by the ears and going, you're going to get hurt. You're going to get hurt in the process. So God in love for us says, look, there's a lesson. Love wisely respects boundaries. It says, you know, I, I need to be wise here and I need to realize I'm here to help and available, but at the same time, I don't ever want to push beyond where I should and love recognizes that very, very practical instruction that God gives to us. The third thing he mentions in our verse as well regarding love, he says, make it your goal to also thirdly, he says, verse 11, to be responsible and productive. 
He says to work with your own hands. Now, this was important because in the ancient Greek culture, the mentality of the Greeks in that culture that Paul's writing was that manual work was something that was very demeaning. It was regulated to slaves and the lower class in society. So people's mentality is they longed to become in a place financially where they could hire slaves and lower class people to do their domestic work and to take care of their affairs so they could have the freedom to intellectually study and have leisure activities. So work was viewed in a negative sense. It was viewed as something that was unimportant and even from their perspective, rather unspiritual. You're lower class if you're someone who has to do those things. Yet the Bible, when you read it from Genesis to the very beginning, the Bible upholds work as a good thing, as an important thing. We see from the Garden of Eden, God gave Adam a garden to work as a gift, to be productive, to have something constructive to do. And again, God instituting work for Adam in the garden to tend it and work it and keep it came before the curse of sin entered into humanity. People say, oh, work's a curse, man. It's a curse. No. The result of work is now a curse because it's much harder to eke a living. Work was a gift of God. It was originally a blessing. It gave humanity, it gave man something constructive to do as a way to spend his time. So Adam wasn't idly walking around looking at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil more than he should because he was busy tending his garden. It was originally given as a gift to give man something to do to be constructive and responsible and self-sufficient so that they would not, humanity, become unnecessarily a burden on other people, but that they would be responsible and self-sufficient. So having something to occupy your hands with, to work in some way, whether it's occupationally or domestically, taking care of your children and maintaining your household, look, having something to have your hands involved in, be preoccupied, is a good thing. It's, let me go further, it's a godly thing. It's something that pleases God and it displays a measure of love for other people when you and I put in a good, hard day's work to some extent because that contributes to a productive, responsible lifestyle. In the same way, you could say that to be lazy and irresponsible and unproductive is unloving towards other people. It's unloving because it drains from others what perhaps we should be supplying responsibly for ourselves by contributing in a way that we may be capable to. So to aspire to work responsibly, the Bible says, shows and practices love because a self-supporting person is not going to become an unnecessary burden on others who are working hard to have to then support or uphold them. So it demonstrates I'm willing to do my part to be productive to be constructive, to be a self-sufficient person, to provide for myself, my immediate family. And here's what's interesting. Think this through with me. Is it not true that if a person is a working, responsible, occupied person in that sense, doing some form of productive work, typically they're going to probably live a more peaceful, calm, quiet life because they're paying their bills and they're too tired to act crazy. Right? And on top of that, if you're preoccupied with responsibilities and being productive, you don't have time to get involved in other people's business because you're trying to keep yours afloat because you have things that you're constructively doing. Again, idle time is the devil's playground, let's be honest. 
And the Bible even upholds work as a good thing because Ephesians 4 says that we should work with our hands so we have something to share. So it's not even just being self-supporting. Then when somebody does have a genuine need and maybe somebody can't work or they go through a crisis or they're in a financial situation, God says your work can also then be loving because you have maybe a little excess that you can help meet a need. And you can support someone in a loving way. So practical are these things, it almost seems they became overlooked and neglected as not spiritual. Some believe the reason Paul's writing this, when you look at 2 Thessalonians 2, was because some believers in that day were sort of hyper-spiritualizing Paul's teaching about the soon return of Jesus. And this mindset of the soon return of Jesus was causing some in a hyper-spiritual way to be tempted to just abandon working their jobs so they could just pray and read their Bible and evangelize everybody in the whole world because Jesus is coming back. I don't need to work. Jesus is coming back. And, and, and so much so that when you read 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and I encourage you to do that, we'll see it when we study it, there's a whole issue in the church where people were living disorderly and they were mooching off of others and people weren't properly providing for their households and, and Paul had to deal with the whole issue for almost an entire chapter and say, look, this is wrong. This is disorderly. This is not the way God would have us to live. It's hyper-spirituality and Paul had to address that in the next letter. Well, lastly, notice verse 12. Paul then concludes by supplying some great reasons to walk in love as he describes practically in verse 11. He says, here's some good reasons that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. Another translation renders verse 12 this way. As a result, people who are not Christians will respect the way that you live and will not, you will not need to depend on others to meet your financial needs. This is what Paul is saying here. These are great reasons or benefits why leading a quiet life, minding your own business, working productively and responsibly is good because he says, first of all, number one, that that might then represent the Christian life well. And you'll obtain the respect, he says, of outsiders. The idea is unbelievers. That the unsaved world would say, hey, you're walking properly. Look, he says that you may walk properly toward or in front of those who are outside. The Bible seems to indicate leading a quiet life, minding our own business, being responsible and productive is a proper way to live out our life. And it would seem to indicate that to not do that is to live improperly. And the detriment of that is he says those who are outside, they're watching. And let's be very honest. When a believer is violating some of these areas, it tends to cause people who are unsaved to look at your life and have a very negative perspective. And I tell you this, you will not have their respect. And you're wanting to have a platform to speak to them spiritually and, and they can't relate to you. Because they're thinking, look, I'm trying to you know, do this and do that and, and I have no respect for you because of the way that you live. In the same way, when we do live this way and we roll up our sleeves next to others and we live respectfully and responsibly and, and people, hey, I respect that guy. I respect that gal and it earns a platform toward those who are outside to speak to them on spiritual terms. The other reason he mentions in verse 12 as well, he says that you may lack nothing. Again, the idea there again is financially that you would be a stable, self-supporting person rather than living dependently on someone else in a way really you shouldn't have to. Now, 
the Bible is here not promoting a fierce spirit of proud independence and never receiving help. It's simply instructing us not to become selfishly irresponsible and to become lazy. Not to become someone who unnecessarily develops a spirit of entitlement. And our culture is wonderful at that in America these days. Where at times there's this spirit of entitlement which lets other people work hard and take care of you when to some extent you could be contributing and taking care of yourself. And God is warning, let not that set in. Don't do that. He says, that's not loving. That's not loving towards others. It's not loving to cause them when they're already working hard to then on top of it have to uphold you when you could do your part and you know that you could. And again, it's just this important warning that we not slip into this. Jesus said it best this way. Whenever possible, Jesus said, love understands this. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Amen?